Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Wednesday, June 2nd. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. President Joe Biden appointing Vice President Kamala Harris to lead federal election protection efforts as experts warn about legislation targeting voting rights in dozens of states. Another massive cyber attack, this time targeting the nation's food supply. A major meatpacker falling victim to what the White House calls a Russian-based attack. And as a wave of violence hits the nation from Miami to Los Angeles, an outbreak of mass shootings continues to grow. The details and more today on U News. begin today with new efforts from the White House to protect voting rights. President Biden is now tasking Vice President Kamala Harris with a growing challenge to lead this administration's voting rights initiatives. Edwin Piti is live in Washington, D.C. with the very latest details on this. Edwin. Andrea, it was during a speech commemorating the Tulsa race massacre in Oklahoma that President Biden announced that Vice President Harris will lead this administration's push to protect voting rights. The new challenge for Harris comes as some states, led by Republicans, continue to push bills to impose sweeping new restrictions on voting. Biden condemned those attempts and added that he believes Harris is the right person to get the job done. I'm asking Vice President Harris to help these efforts and lead them among her many other responsibilities. With her leadership and your support, we're going to overcome again, I promise you, but it's going to take a hell of a lot of work. This sacred right is under assault with incredible intensity like I've never seen, even though I got started as a public defender and a civil rights lawyer. With an intensity and an aggressiveness that we've not seen in a long, long time. It's simply un-American. It's not, however, sadly, unprecedented. Harry says she'll be working with community organizers, voting rights groups, the private sectors and Congress to get the job done. They'll be pushing for a strong legislation despite divisions in the Senate. Just last month, the vice president addressed those intentions of limit, limiting early and mailing voting. This is what she had to say. We have the opportunity to make voting easier, not more difficult, to lift up more voices, not fewer. And we must start by fighting against attacks on voting rights. And it is happening right before us in so many instances, in such a blatant way and in an unapologetic way. President Biden said he would, quote, fight with every tool at my disposal to get the law passed. He added that the current assault is not just an echo of distant history. He also said that in 2020, we faced restrictive laws, lawsuits, threats of intimidation, voter purges, and even more. The Supreme Court is set to hear a voting rights case in its current term. It involves two Arizona regulations that a lower court ruled violated the Voting Rights Act. One bans giving any help to a voter in returning their ballot. The other throws out any ballot cast at the wrong percent. The ACLU says the court's decision could have broad implications for the voting rights act in the future. Reporting live in Washington, D.C., Andrea, back to you. Thank you, Edwin, for those details.
And President Biden is erasing another environmental policy move from the Trump administration. A senior official confirms the White House is set to suspend oil and gas leases in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Earlier this year, Biden issued an executive order that calls for a moratorium on those deals while a review was underway. According to the order, Biden said there were, quote, alleged legal deficiencies underlying the program. During the waning days of his term, then-President Trump began a leasing process for drilling sites in the wildlife refuge. That decision was blasted by environmental groups as a giveaway to the energy industry. And now to the ongoing threat of cyber attacks against key infrastructure and businesses here in the United States. JBS, the world's largest meat processing company, has been targeted by just the latest sophisticated attack. Computer networks at the company temporarily shutting down some operations in Australia, Canada and the U.S. with thousands of workers affected. Another targeted cyber attack. This time, it's JBS, America's largest meat supplier. The company declaring significant progress was made to get back up and running after a ransomware attack by a Russian-based group, forced a shutdown of all eight U.S. beef plants and others in Canada and Australia. All its facilities were impacted in some capacity. Preliminary reports suggest that it was a hacker group called Revil, or ransomware evil. They sell ransomware to uh, customers, essentially, uh, to help those customers breach and raise money from uh, honest companies. JBS suspended all affected systems as soon as the attack was detected. However, its backup servers were not hacked. So far, experts say the quality and safety of the meat is not impacted, but they do warn consumers that this could result in rising meat prices, just as grilling season heats up with Father's Day and July 4th around the corner. This is the second attack in recent months on a major U.S. company. Just last month, the Colonial Pipeline was targeted by Russian hackers, causing a gas shortage and forcing thousands of American gas stations to close. Ransomware attacks are on the rise. I think a lot of companies are getting the message now that previously they felt they might be beyond the target set of these hacker groups, and they'll now have to think again. They'll have to invest more in better preventive controls, increase their resilience. We can do things to improve our capabilities. Supermarkets and some fast food chains will be some of the most immediately impacted customers due to their need for consistent supply. Now, the White House says the FBI is investigating this attack. JBS announcing today that most of its plants are now up and running again. Turning to the growing spate of mass shootings in America. In Miami, a deadly incident just several days ago prompting a massive search for the three people police say opened fire on a group of concert goers. Two victims now dead and dozens wounded. Jorge Hernandez brings us the latest. The videos tell the story of a night of terror. In this case, we don't hear the burst of gunshots, but the reaction of the people running for their lives speaks for itself. The footage even allows us to see the suspect, three men still being sought by police, getting out with assault rifles and handguns before entering this banquet hall where a rap concert was being held early Sunday morning and firing indiscriminately, 
the outcome more than 20 wounded and at least two dead. We're going to use all the necessary means to bring to justice these cowards who have no respect for the law, no respect for human beings, no respect for life. The search has been by land and air. The vehicle believed to be used in the shooting has already been found in this canal. It turns out it had been reported stolen two weeks ago. <laughs> Yesterday, family members continued to remember their loved ones at the scene of the shooting. You kill my kid. This image of the father of one of the victims interrupting a weekend press conference demanding justice for his son has shaken the community. Cindy Reese works at a hair salon just steps away from where the incident took place. There have always been events, but it has never gone worse than a fist fight, things like that. Everything points to the fact that the motive may have been a settling of scores between rival gangs that have been insulting each other on social media. The biggest concern for authorities and the community is that this is just one of the shootings that have taken place in the last few days. Shootings have also occurred in the Wynwood and Miami Beach areas, although on a smaller scale. Pro-gun control organizations have reacted. The easy access to guns due to lack of universal criminal background checks and easy access to military-style weapons that should not be in civilians' hands. That debate is being reopened once again, while in Miami the reward for the shooters is at $130,000. Reported by Lourdes del Rio in Miami, Florida, this is Jorge Hernandez, U News. Elsewhere across the country, more incidents of gun violence. A 44-year-old California firefighter was killed in a shooting at a fire station. It happened Tuesday morning in Aguadulce, about 30 miles north of downtown Los Angeles. Another firefighter was wounded. Fire Chief Daryl Osby says the suspect was an off-duty firefighter who was later found dead at his home, which was set on fire. Chief Osby says the victim who died in the shooting was a member of the department for over 20 years. The second victim in the shooting is a 53-year-old fire captain and is now in critical but stable condition. And six people are in the hospital after a mass shooting in Ohio. It happened at around 2 a.m. near a liquor store in the city of Springfield. The conditions of the victims are not known, but one was severe enough to require transport to the hospital on a hel helicopter. Police have not commented on details surrounding the shooting. They are working to identify a suspect. The CDC forecasting that COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations and deaths will continue to decline in the coming weeks. This as more and more cities go back to pre-pandemic life. Lorraine Cáceres has the latest. The pandemic isn't officially over, but life in the U.S. is getting closer each day to pre-COVID times. This is the level of COVID positivity today in New York City, 0 0.8. 0.83%, the lowest we've seen ever since this pandemic began. Las Vegas casinos removing plexiglass dividers and adding more seating. In Milwaukee, businesses now allowed to operate without mask requirements and capacity limits. And Philadelphia announcing it's removing most of its restrictions starting today. 
we still are at risk of, of variants in this country. The more people are vaccinated, the more protected we are. 12 states have now reached the Biden administration's goal to vaccinate 70% of adults with at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine by July 4th. Moderna is now requesting full FDA approval of its vaccine, something that could help fight vaccine hesitancy. I think getting to the populations that are reluctant, that are hesitant, that are still waiting for more information, again, once the vaccine gets full approval, we're going to be able to reach another percentage of them. According to a recent poll, more than one-third of unvaccinated adults in the U.S. say they'd be more likely to get a vaccine if the shot was fully FDA-backed. In Texas, 117 current and former employees are suing Houston Methodist Hospital for ordering them to get vaccinated by June 7th or face termination. The lawsuit stating the mandate goes too far and violates personal autonomy, but the hospital defending itself, saying, quote, personal autonomy isn't a valid reason to refuse the vaccine if it means it could irreversibly harm or even kill patients through possible transmission. Meanwhile, as support surges in Washington for a fuller investigation into the origins of COVID-19, Facebook now tweaking its policy and no longer taking down posts claiming that COVID-19 was man-made or manufactured. An ensemble forecast published by the CDC today are predicting that COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations and deaths will continue to decline in the next four weeks, but deaths could still reach 614,000 by the end of this month on June 26. Andrea, back to you. Thank you, Lorraine, for that report. A new study suggests that masks and social distancing are still needed, even with vaccinations. Researchers reported in the medical journal JAMA Network Open that even with a majority of the population vaccinated, the removal of precautions could lead to an increase in virus spread. The CDC announced last month that it was safe for fully vaccinated people to go maskless in most social situations. According to the agency, about 40% of the total U.S. population has been fully vaccinated. And as summer approaches, the CDC has also issued new guidance about U.S. summer camps, saying that unvaccinated children can go without masks at camps most of the time when they are outdoors. Joining us to discuss this topic is Dr. Ebony Hilton, a professor and physician at the University of Virginia. Welcome to you, News Doctor. Yeah, how are you? I'm doing well. So what's your reaction to this new CDC guidance about unvaccinated children at summer camps? Does it strike you as the right move at this time? Yeah, you know, it's one of those things we know we definitely want to get our children back to some form of normalcy, but we have to keep in mind that vaccine uptake has not been equal across the board. We know you mentioned that 12 states have now reached 70% of their first dose targets. Um, and that's fantastic. But we know is that there's a a lack of uptake or at least a decrease of uptake in the South. For instance, for fully vaccinated persons in South Carolina, that's 33%. In Georgia, it's 32%. In Texas, like you were mentioning, the healthcare workers, it's 35%. So depending on where you're sending your child for this camp, it may literally determine whether or not you should be sending them, um, especially if they're not going to wear masks. 
While national COVID-19 trends tell one story, we also know that the pandemic has, for example, affected Latino and black populations disproportionately. Do you feel that CDC COVID guidance has done an adequate job accounting for these realities? I think um, not when we talk about the fact that we know systemic racism plays into why we have higher numbers of, of cases as well as hospitalizations and unfortunately deaths in the black and brown communities. Until we address the fact of, of what it means to live in these high density populations, until we address the fact that we have limited access to healthcare resources and that persons may not be able to get vaccinated, it's not that they necessarily may be he vaccine hesitant, it may be they're vaccine denied. And when we're talking about our children in particular, we have to look at the percentage of children in these racial minority groups who may not have a primary care physician. So how are we getting these vaccines to them if they don't have that uh, pediatrician and really making those vaccines available to them in class? As schools let out for the summer and COVID-19 restrictions are lifted around the country, is there anything that concerns you medically about the safety of our children in this new type of environment, whether they're in camp or they're simply staying at home? Right, the thing that concerns me is that there's still so much unknown about COVID-19, right? We know that we have children who have these long collar symptoms and what does it do when you have an infection of this, of this type of virus? Even if the child, thank God, most of our children do not die, but we know that inflammatory process, what does it do to the developing heart, to the developing lungs, to the developing brain when that child loses their taste and smell? Will they start to develop these chronic illnesses like heart failure symptoms or, or, or even neurologic impact when they're 30 and 40 years old instead of when they're 60, 70 years old? We don't know, and it's simply not worth the risk of exposure to me. Um, and so that's why we have to be vigilant and being protective of our kids, vaccinating all the adults that can get vaccinated and create this herd immunity for them. As the Biden administration continues pushing people to get vaccinated, how would you handle a patient who remains hesitant about getting that vaccine or even getting their child vaccinated as these vaccines become available for some children? Right. You know, I think we meet people where they are and we talk about what exactly are your concerns? What are your fears? Some people are vaccine curious, not necessarily vaccine hesitant. They want to know exactly how does the mRNA vaccine work? They want to know um, what are the studies showing now as far as any long term impact? But what I tell parents is at this point, if we look at it, we have vaccinated at least one dose to 296 million Americans. It, we, we are not seeing these, these unheard of cases that you see on social media, right? This is literally a safe, um, a safe vaccine that you can take. And we have many different options for you to choose from. But when weighing the risk benefit of COVID-19 versus vaccinations, vaccinations will win every single time. Thank you so much, Dr. Hilton, for all your insights and also the work that you're doing. Take care. Thank you. Meanwhile, Las Vegas is officially back in business. Casinos are taking down the plexiglass and entertainment venues are throwing their doors open for full occupancy events. Grecia Lastra reports on what that reopening could mean for other travel destinations across the nation. In downtown Las Vegas, a countdown to Marks and City's comeback. As of 12.01 a.m. today, pandemic restrictions now a thing of the past.
maskless tourists celebrating. You just have to see it in order to believe it. It feels good, though, to be back free. Hopefully everybody goes gets vaccinated and we, we back out here. For the first time in over a year, visitors rocked out to live music. <laughs> Casinos, restaurants and hotels back to full capacity. Those plexiglass dividers meant to keep gamblers safe during the pandemic officially coming down. In most places, fully vaccinated visitors can now ditch the mask and scrap social distancing. But health experts worry not everyone will play by the rules. Well, the challenge is to get people to actually wear their masks if they have not been vaccinated. It's on the honor system. And we have a lot of people coming to town who are on their first vacation in a year and a half. But for a city so reliant on tourism, it's a tricky balance. Last year, the coronavirus pandemic turned Vegas into a ghost town. Casinos were ordered to shut their doors, costing thousands of jobs and billions in lost revenue. The Vegas jobless rate shot to 33% last April, from 7% in March, one of the worst in the nation. Large trade shows and conventions came to a halt. How critical are conventions to the Las Vegas economy? They're so critical that what you see on the Strip would not make sense to build without meetings and conventions as a major component of that. Conventions bring in big bucks and crucial weekday bookings, contributing more than $11 billion in 2019 alone. Next week, the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority will debut its nearly $1 billion expansion to host America's first major trade show since the pandemic began. World of Concrete, uh, which is tens of thousands of people, will be here June 8th. It will be the first what we call a citywide event uh, to happen in the United States. It's an economic test where the stakes are high, even for a city accustomed to high stakes. This is Grecia Lastra reporting for U News. And another coronavirus news. A new study suggests it's unlikely for coronavirus to be transmitted through blood transfusions. Researchers at the National Institutes of Health and others examined more than 250,000 blood donations from March to September of last year. COVID-19 was detected in just a few of the samples, and even then, the viral load was extremely low. The Food and Drug Administration currently recommends anyone who has been diagnosed or suspected of having COVID-19 wait at least 14 days after symptoms subside to donate blood. A new study suggests a link between the pandemic and excess deaths from kidney failure. The CDC published the study on Tuesday. Researchers analyzed data from end-stage renal disease patients. End-stage renal disease is when a person's kidneys stop functioning and they need dialysis or a kidney transplant. Scientists found the estimated number of deaths were two to three times higher among dialysis patients than kidney transplant patients. They say people on dialysis are at a higher risk of death from COVID-19 due to weakened immune systems and other medical conditions. And another health news, U.S. government researchers are working on a universal flu vaccine. On Tuesday, the U.S. National Institutes of Health announced it's launching a small early phase trial of a new flu vaccine. 
The hope is that the vaccine might protect people against new variants and for more than a single flu season. Researchers will use small particles called nanoparticles to hopefully induce a long-lasting immune response to variants. While there are several so-called universal vaccines being tested, this specific trial will involve 35 volunteers who will get either a current flu vaccine or the experimental shot. On Tuesday, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi gave Democrats options for continuing to pursue the investigation into the January 6th Capitol insurrection. This comes after Senate Republicans blocked a plan to have a bipartisan commission conduct an investigation late last week. Pelosi says Democrats can do one of four things. Push for a second Senate vote on a bipartisan commission. Establish a select committee to investigate. Let the standing committees continue their investigations or empower one standing committee, like the Homeland Security Committee, to take charge of a probe. Also out of Washington, the Pentagon says the process to withdraw American troops from Afghanistan is more than a third of the way done. U.S. Central Command estimated that between 30 and 40 percent of the job is already complete. The U.S. has handed the Defense Logistics Agency nearly 13,000 pieces of equipment and the Afghan Minister, Ministry of Defense over six bases and military assets. President Biden has said he wants U.S. service members completely out of Afghanistan by September 11th. And in other military news, House Democrats introduced legislation to protect transgender dependents of military service members. Congressman Jimmy Panetta of California and 40 other House Democrats introduced the measure on Tuesday. It would prevent service members with transgender or gender nonconforming family members from being stationed in a state or country that prohibits or limits gender affirming health care. This comes as states across the nation have passed or are considering measures limiting access to such health care options. In April, Arkansas became the first state to prohibit doctors from providing gender affirming treatment for trans people under age 18. The ACLU says there are at least 12 other states weighing similar bills. Meanwhile, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law a ban on transgender girls from competing in girls and women's sports at an event at a Christian school in Jacksonville on the first day of Pride Month, which celebrates the LGBTQ community. Advocates say the law prevents an unfair advantage in competitions, but critics slam it as being discriminatory and unnecessary. Gay rights organization Human Rights Watch announced Tuesday it plans to file a lawsuit to overturn the measure. And also in Florida, the state's agriculture commissioner, Nikki Freed, has announced she is running for governor. Her announcement was made Tuesday on Twitter and sets up a primary between her and Representative Charlie Crist. Freed blasted Florida's, quote, rigged system and says she will address a number of issues, including health care and marijuana legislation. Freed is a Florida native who went to the University of Florida and previously served as a public defender and defense attorney. Christ was Florida's governor from 2007 through 2011 as a Republican, but has since left the GOP. Either Freed or Christ will likely face off against incumbent Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. Now to New York, where new economic assistance and tools are rolling out for some of the city's most vulnerable residents. Fabiola Galindo explains. Victoria has waited for months for this day to arrive. 
I was fired from my job and then I got sick for 15 days, says the home attendant, who lost her job due to COVID. And then the debt started to accumulate. Now she owes $4,200 in rent. But starting this Tuesday, thousands of tenants in New York can apply for a rent relief program. The application is finally available online on the state's website. And nonprofit organizations are ready to help them navigate the system. If they have one, they can bring the apartment lease or a letter from the landlord stating how much money they owe. They'll also need an ID. The aid is available for those who owe rent at least since March of 2020. You must make less than 80% of the medium income of the area where you live. That's around $90,000 a year for a family of four. Undocumented tenants can also apply. It was very depressing because I barely have money. I can't imagine where to get the money to pay it all. The $2.3 billion fund could cover up to 12 months of past due rent, 12 months of utilities, and up to three months of advance rent. Around 200,000 tenants could benefit from the program. I feel so happy now because it's not fair to lose your home. The process is free of charge and applications will be received throughout the next months, but it's recommended that you file as soon as possible because the funds will be distributed first come, first serve. In Queens, New York, Fabiola Galindo, U News. New legislation in Illinois has immigration advocates celebrating that measure restricting cooperation between federal ICE agents and local authorities. Ana de Mendoza brings us all the details. We are going to be able to be free without harassment, without persecution, calm, in peace. As an activist and immigrant, Milagro Silva says she is celebrating the Illinois state legislator passing a law that prohibits ICE collaboration with local police. Basically, what we're trying to say here is that the job of the police is to protect the community and not do ICE's job and assist them in separating families. The law also prohibits ICE contracts with Illinois jails for the detention of undocumented immigrants. In Illinois, three state prisons have contracts for this purpose, and with this law, those agreements would end by January 1st, 2022. State stations that are working with the police department are going to stop. They are under contract, but as soon as it ends, that's the end of that. Police in Illinois counties and cities would also not be able to assist with ICE raids, unless there is a federal warrant in place. Critics of the law say it will hurt the state. What this bill is going to do is put our communities in danger. It is cutting any communication between the ICE department and the towns. Meanwhile, community leaders say they will now start the hardest work. A lot of informing our communities of these changes and telling them these are the new rights that you have. Washington State and California have enacted similar laws. Reported by Viviana Avila in Chicago. Ana de Mendoza, U News. More of U News after this short break. 
Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The effects of COVID-19 will be felt for decades to come. Both parties are very far apart. Approximately 250,000 people have lost their lives. You news covers the news of your world. It makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. You news on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. Iran's largest Navy ship sank on Wednesday after catching fire in the Gulf of Oman, but the crew was safely rescued. And that's according to Iranian media. No further explanation was given for the latest incident in a region that has seen its recent share of marine incidents. In April, Iran said one of its vessels had been targeted in the Red Sea after media reports the ship had been attacked with mines. That came after Israel and Iran had blamed each other for a series of reported attacks on cargo ships occurring since late February. And another nautical news, the nation of Sri Lanka is warning a cargo ship which is sinking off its coast could soon start spilling oil. The government says the back of the ship's hull has been breached and water is leaking in. The ship caught fire nearly two weeks ago and emergency measures have been put into place to try and prevent environmental damage to a nearby lagoon and wildlife. And closer to home in Mexico, a huge sinkhole measuring about 200 feet in diameter and 65 feet in depth appeared in the state of Puebla over the weekend. Local authorities say it happened due to a possible geological fault. No injuries or fatal victims have been reported. Specialists are now investigating what could have caused the phenomenon. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.